Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to Pivot Point bonus episode. I'm so glad that you're here. Now on the last episode, I left you with how Wynton Marcellus changed my life. He came in as a high school senior to give a trumpet seminar to all the trumpet students at Berkeley. And he played so wonderfully that he blew the doors off of me and I'm sure other other of my friends. Uh, but it put me into a crisis, which had me now wondering, can I really make it in the world as a performer? So through the soul searching, walking Boylston and Mass Ave at nighttime, I heard music that was just, I can only describe it as glorious. I absolutely loved it. And so I found out where it was. I followed it down to an alley. The following day, I went to a building, saw that it was Berkeley's building, went up to the third floor, I believe, where I th- yeah, that's where the film scoring department was, if my mer- memory serves me correct. And the second floor was the administration, and that's where I changed my major, and my life was changed forever. So what happens next? Well, I graduate from Berkeley, graduating cum laude with a film composition degree. Quincy Jones handed me my diploma. I was thrilled by that. Can't find that picture anywhere, but I know I've got it somewhere. I got married in October and moved to California. This was the time to break in and, you know, here I am, Hollywood. So, let's let's talk about that. I arrive in California uh, in October, and it was um, like someone dropped us off on the moon. Because I grew up on the East Coast where it was green and four seasons. And as you know, in California, it is sunny. It's a desert. So lots of things are brown. Back at that time, the smog was unbelievable. I lived in Glendale near the San Gabriel Mountains. And there were some days you couldn't even see the mountains. So you're in a strange, stranger in a strange land. I was fortunate enough to have a couple of alumni from Berkeley who are already working. One was working in feature films. Another one was working on a hit TV show. They were very helpful, guiding me, helping me try to get work, introducing me to people. But it was as though the world was saying no. The doors were just closed after closed after closed. The union was an issue if I wanted to do music editing. Um, I wanted to do composing. Uh, I met Elsa Blankstead. She was very, very kind. She introduced me to a number of people. But one thing I remember that she said to me that has proven not to be true. And she said I had to choose. I couldn't be a music editor and a composer. That was just not allowed. And I didn't understand that. I had gifts and talents in both. Why can't I do both? 
So it really kind of put me into another, mm, not a crisis, but I'm like, I was young, I was impressionable. And as it turns out, here I am now, I'm composing and I'm music editing. It's, it's, uh, I do both. People call me for both services. Back then, though, I felt I needed to choose. And so I went for more for music editing than composing. When I look back at it, I kind of wish I went to USC afterwards because they had a great film program, and they still do, film music program. And um, But I had gone to college for five years. Uh, when I transferred from UMass and Amherst, I lost some credits. And so my senior year was a very light year, but it was my fifth year in college, and I was done. I wish that I had the foresight and the understanding to go to USC and study under people like David Raxon and Jerry Goldsmith. And I mean, I just don't know who else was there. But those two alone would have changed my world. But that's not how it happened. Mainly because I was told I need to make a choice and I just didn't want to go back to college again. Major pivot points, major career directional choices. Did I consult a lot of people on it? Have I yet? No. I was still in that point of thinking, I know what I'm doing. And I wish I had reached out for consultation. But here I am, making, making my way, trying to get jobs. The LA Union would not allow me in. Even when I had jobs, people were willing to hire me. But I couldn't get in. The roster was full, even though I had a copy of the roster and there were people on it who were deceased. And when I point that out to them, it didn't make a bit of difference. So what do you do with that? I ended up doing some non-union work. Wasn't a lot. Little things here and there. And after about a year, my daughter was born. Now, I really needed to work. So, I ended up working at an architecture firm. The name of that firm is was Carly Architecture. I don't know if they're still around in Glendale. But I w- ran blueprints. So, every day I would go to work, go into a room filled with ammonia with a big, huge machine. People would say, hey, give me three sepia copies of this particular print. And so I would pull out the print, run a bunch of copies, lay them all out for them to pick up, and put the originals back. And that's what I was doing for at least a year. And in the meantime, I would still take phone calls from my friends, ask me to check this person out, talk to this person, try to get this job, try to get that job. It wasn't happening. Um, Prior to the... Carly architecture job, I would go and visit the heads of the music departments at the studios, both on television and feature side. Back then, you could do that. You can't get on a lot today. But back then, I used to walk up with an empty film can or a film can filled with fill liter and say I had a meeting with so-and-so and they would just point me on the way, you know? And uh, that happened a lot, and it was great, but still no work. 
So finally, after three years, it was time to make a choice again. At that time, my former wife really wanted to move back east. And I was really reticent about that. This was my goal. This was my dream. But it wasn't working. Eventually, it was to a point where I agreed. And we were so broke, we weren't able to even afford to get back. And my brother bought us plane tickets. We sold as much stuff as we could. And we moved back. And we moved in with my parents. That's probably a little bit more common today. But at that time, man, once you left the nest, there was no way you were going back. It was unheard of to live with your parents. And it, it was difficult. It was not a good time. And I was defeated. I thought I would never work in this industry. My heart was totally broken. I packed up all of my notebooks and my resources and my click track book and you name it. And I just put them all in a box, taped it all up and threw it up in my parents' attic. And I was yet again in another crisis. During that time, my ex-wife wanted me to seek some help um, because I was pretty... Mm, angry. Now, when I say that, I wasn't walking around like, you know, a person with anger, rage. I just was not happy. And I was mad because I felt tricked. I felt like I just wasted five years of my life. And seeking help, part of it was she asked me to go on a crucio. Now, for those who don't know what that is, it is a Catholic retreat. Now, I was born into the Catholic religion. I was not a practicing Catholic. I have my own faith, but it was not uh, of Catholic faith. But I had a lot of openness and understanding of where they were coming from. And the whole idea of this crucio was to encounter Christ, which, I mean, that's how it was explained to me, and that's how I remember it. So during this weekend, you'd have a lot of time alone, a lot of time of reflection, and you'd also have some group meetings. And near the end, everybody and your family sends you these letters of love and support. And I share all this with the idea of not trying to push a religion, and I'm certainly not bashing anything. I'm simply trying to say, this is what I experienced. So during that weekend, it was a long weekend, I finally got to this point of allowing my dream to die. It was cathartic for me. It was deep. It was physical, this letting go. And I resisted it to the very bitter end. I did not want to let my dream go. But uh, what else was I going to do? I was married, I had a baby girl, and I had no future. I had no way of earning a living, and my dream, the thing that I spent five years preparing for, was not going to happen. You know, people have talked about rock bottom 
for me, it was the dark day of the soul time, which equated the only way to move forward was to leave something behind. And so I did. It wasn't a relief. It was like a death for me because I really loved film music. I loved storytelling and I didn't get a chance to do it. So I didn't know what I was going to do next, but that weekend came and went, finished it up. And I was probably less angry. And by angry, I guess I probably could say I was angry at God, maybe angry at myself for believing in a dream, angry at Hollywood for spitting me out. These are the thoughts that I had. That's what it felt like to me. A major rejection on multiple levels. So fortunately, I was able to get a very part-time job working at Berkeley The dean of the department was my former teacher and mentor and friend. And he was able to get me a couple of TA jobs, if I remember correctly. And, you know, life starts going on. I was starting to do the work. I was trying to figure out how to make a living and how to save money and (laughs) how to move out of my parents' house. One thing that happened was Don Wilkins, who was the dean of the film scoring department back then, who started the film scoring department, uh, had a, a contact at MIT. There was a doctor there who reached out to him and wanted to do a radio show. And as I look back at it, it's much like doing a podcast, but it was a radio show and he needed somebody to produce it. And we met a couple of times. We talked about equipment. I advised him on what he needed to record it. And we started making a list of things and moving forward to what was the next step. Around that time, I received a phone call from a music supervisor in New York. His name was Herb Harris. And he reached out to me to see if I was available to be a music editor on a TV show. It was a mid-season replacement. You know, when a show is not doing well, they'll greenlight another show, and hopefully that will take off and replace the show that's not doing so good. This show was a takeoff on The Big Chill, and it was called Hometown. So here I am now, confronted with... I'm never going to work in this business. I've given it up in my soul. Like I turned away. It was done. It was dead in me. And what do I do now? I've already started a new pathway for my life. So fortunately, this time, I actually sought some wisdom and I asked my dad. And I said to him, Well, I laid out everything that was happening. And of course, he knew a lot because we were living there. So I asked him, what do you think I should do? And my dad looked at me and said, what do you have to lose? And I I 
<laughs> I had already lost it. So I had nothing to lose. And so I called Herb Harris back. I asked about the details of the project. When did I need to start? And then I also asked him, how did he get my name? How did he know to even call my parents' phone number? And he told me that there was a gentleman at the head of film music at Paramount, and his name is Bob, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name. And if anybody who hears this knows it, please let me know. And I used to go see Bob all the time. If you remember, I said that I would go onto the lots and meet with people. Bob was one of the people I used to meet with. And he was very open, very understanding. And he somehow knew I moved from L.A. back east. And he told Herb about me and that I was the one that he should call for the gig. So... I called Bob afterwards, and I thanked him. And his words to me were, I'm sorry we couldn't do anything for you here in L.A., but hopefully this will work out for you in New York. Now, is that not amazing to have somebody be that generous and that kind and that giving? And that pivot point, that time changed my whole career. And here's how. So I go down and I fly to New York, which at that time, again, I was still in my 20s, early 20s, and I was pretty petrified of the Big Apple. Meet up with Herb. He immediately takes me to the union office. I've had very bad experiences with the union thus far, the LA union anyway. They were two separate unions. And the New York Union was night and day difference. I walk in, Herb walks in with me, he explains the project, they give me paperwork, and the guy says to me, you can become part of the New York Union as long as you guarantee that you're not part of the LA Union. For which I was able to easily guarantee, <laughs> because that's the reason why I was back east. <laughs> So I'm now part of the union, and I'm working on a union film, and away I go. And it's a TV project. I don't know any of the people. I've never worked on you know, a major show right away. It was like I jumped 10 years of a career, into my career. I felt very confident with the work. I knew what I was doing. Um, I had to learn how to deal with people which that was probably the hardest part of the job. And then a couple of things happened after that. One, the original composer on the job had scored three episodes, and the producers hadn't had an opportunity to listen to it. Neither did the studio. They finally got a chance to listen to it. We were, again, mid-season, so we were, we were well early on in terms of airtime. They heard it, they were not happy with it. It wasn't the direction they wanted to go in. So then they needed to find another composer. And you know how I talk about that unction, that thing inside, that voice? Well, that voice said, call Don Wilkins. Get his demo reel. So I called Don, tell him what's happening. He overnights me a cassette back in the day, peeps. 
That's what we did. Cassettes. We're at Clinton Recording Studios, which is no longer around in New York. And I told them, I said, look, I think I know what you're looking for. This is uh, somebody that I know. He's in Boston. And here's his demo tape. Let's listen. So they listened. The two directors, so the Kurgo sisters and Herb, we listened to it. And they loved it. They said, great, call them. So not only was I able to get a job working on a TV show, I was also able to return or pay it forward, if you will, allowing my mentor to get a gig. And we got to work together. So what greater experience could you have on working on your first major project with your mentor? Let alone the fact that I'm now working in the industry that I thought I would never, ever work in. Not only was I doing music editing work, I was also doing some orchestrating work. So here we are, I'm working. Now all projects have an end. And this one did, the show didn't get picked up. But one of the picture editors went on to do a low-budget feature film that was a musical. I was going to say it was music-heavy, and it was. And that person asked if I would want to come along with him to work on the film. That picture editor's name is Peter Frank. And Peter, if you're ever listening to this, thanks, man. That film was a ton of work. But that film turned out to be Dirty Dancing. And automatically, I had street cred and a career that just got launched. So, talk about pivot points. When you think, well, for me, I was never going to work in this business. Ever. And there I was working on a TV show, and then working on a blockbuster. So pivot points, (laughs) you just never know when they're going to come. And they're going to change your life forever. Now, you know, there's some people who say, always say yes. And for the most part, I agree with that. Definitely investigate everything. And if things aren't good, you can always say no. But... Keep in mind this, that sometimes it doesn't mean what we think it means. For me, leaving L.A. didn't mean what I thought it meant. And you just never know what pivot points will happen in your life and when they'll happen in your life. That will change the direction of your life forever. So that's it. That's this bonus episode. That's part of my story. Until next time, remember, if someone's doing it, why not you?